I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. President Lincoln concluded the Gettysburg Address with the phrase, This nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. There's a great focus on the phrase, a new birth of freedom, as pointing to the Emancipation Proclamation. In his new book, Ways and Means, Roger Lowenstein points out that for the people also represented an important pivot, one towards the view that the government should provide the means through which ordinary working people could better their lives. For example, by incentivizing the construction of railroads and through the expansion of higher education with land-grant universities. And in this way, the government would promote economic development and spread prosperity beyond the rich industrialists of the North and the owners of large plantations in the South. The idea that a robust federal state could play an important role in advancing the economic fortunes of a nation, and especially of fostering greater economic equality, has clear resonance today. In telling the story of the financing of the Civil War and the economic policies of the Lincoln administration, Roger offers a mirror to the current debates over the role of government in building infrastructure and helping people finance their education. And he does so in a compelling and entertaining way, just as he did in his 2015 book, America's Bank, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve. Roger, thank you for the book and thank you for coming on Econofact Chats. Michael, it's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm a big fan of it and I look forward to talking with you. Roger, I was a big fan of Ways and Means and also a big fan of America's Bank. In each of these books, there are compelling personalities whose beliefs, work, and action had profound impacts. One of the central characters of Ways and Means is, of course, President Lincoln. Can you first explain what the role of the federal government was in terms of the economic life of the nation and the provision of infrastructure before Lincoln's election in 1860? Sure, it was virtually nil. They, there was no uh, federal taxing system, no national money, no national bank. There had been a series of infrastructure bills, but they had been vetoed by a series of presidents, uh, six Democratic presidents. So uh, the federal government, uh, you had the post office and uh, obviously the army, which was a small army, and that was basically it. How did Lincoln's experiences as a young man affect his vision of the role of government in the economic sphere? and the ideas that he brought to his presidency? That's a good question, because most people think of Lincoln as a great emancipator and the, uh, the leader of the country during the Civil War, but they don't realize uh, that most of his early career was dedicated to economic issues. He grew up on the frontier. Uh, he was very conscious of the need for better transportation. Uh, he'd be driving uh, uh, stagecoaches over uh, muddy flats. Uh, there wasn't enough credit. The store he clerked for failed because of that. He wanted all these things, more credit, better transportation, educational opportunities, 
particularly for people in the mid-country. And these were issues he brought with him to the White House. So he's very much a man of the frontier who came to the federal government with an idea of improving what we now call the Midwest. Yes, uh, you have to always remember that he was what people then called the West Singer. It wasn't the Midwest. Illinois then was the West. And the opportunities that people had in the East, markets were closer together, the roads were better. Uh, they didn't have those uh, out in Illinois so much. And when Lincoln said, I want every man to have the chance, he was speaking in economic terms and he was speaking about people like himself. When Lincoln was elected, the 37th Congress was seated. And you write about how the 37th Congress fostered what was called a second American revolution in the eight months from December 1861 to July 1862. Can you list some of the important bills they passed and how these bills changed the country? They created a series of remarkable bills. They created the first national money uh, legal tender uh, to pay for the war. They invented the first income tax, the progressive income tax. Both of those changed the country forever. Today, we have fiat money, uh, just as they did in the 1860s. And obviously, we have an income tax. They also launched a series of bills and programs that established the federal government as having a role in the average person's economic wherewithal. Uh, they passed the Homestead Act, giving 160 acres to anybody who would farm the land for five years. They created land-grant colleges uh, entitling uh, middle-class Americans to go to college. This is at a time when uh, fewer than 1% of the country was enrolled in college. And these weren't going to be Ivy League colleges. They were state schools intended for the middle class to teach practical education. They created the Agriculture Department, the first time that a federal department uh, was responsible for the well-being of a major industry in the United States, agriculture then being the biggest. So it was a both a practical change that affected people's lives and an, an intellectual change, an ideological change in the role of the federal government in the U.S. economy. So this was a huge pivot, maybe somewhat like or even extending or bigger than the pivot under Roosevelt in the New Deal. But it was done by the Congress, not by the president. Did Lincoln's hand appear in all of these bills? Was he behind them? Well, those are good questions. Uh, it was like the New Deal, except in as much as we all know about the New Deal, we don't realize that there was a New Deal before the New Deal. Lincoln was very much a supporter of these bills. Congress had much more power vis-a-vis -vis the president in the 19th century. Uh, legislation came from the Congress constitutionally, and Lincoln respected that. Uh, and so it wasn't unusual that the actual bills would start uh, with the leg in the legislative branch although Lincoln was certainly a big supporter of all of them. He was a very big supporter. One bill I had, didn't mention was the, the Transcontinental Railroad. He had been a railroad lawyer. He was a big fan of transportation. He was very much behind uh, the bill to launch the railroad. Another central character in this book is Salmon Chase, Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury. He's described as both the most consequential Secretary of the Treasury since Alexander Hamilton and an emotionally fragile character. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, Salmon Chase had to raise uh, more money than had ever been expended uh, during the life of the Republic, cumulatively, in all the years since then. It was just a daunting task. Uh, he, he, uh, he raised the first 50 million from banks. The banks said to him, that's enough. This should be enough for you to fight the war. In fact, 
he would have to raise 60 times that amount. And to do that, uh, he would have to create memes and go to sources that had never existed before. So he really was a great consequence. He was also, as you pointed out, emotionally fragile, needy. He was always looking to Lincoln for approval. Uh, he was always, he was very morose when he didn't get it. At the same time, he was challenging Lincoln surreptitiously as we got closer to 1864 and Lincoln's reelection, challenging Lincoln uh, uh, to run against him. I worked at the U.S. Treasury in the Obama administration, and my office was on the fourth floor. On the third floor of the Treasury building, there are portraits of all the Treasury secretaries from Hamilton, I guess all the way now to Mnuchin. And it turns out that when I went to my office, the stairwell that I would take, I would come face to face with the portrait of Salmon Chase every morning. And he's like the most unhappy looking guy of all the portraits there of, you know, anybody I've ever seen in a portrait, actually. He was unhappy because he was frustrated in his ambitions. Yes, he, he had challenged Lincoln uh, for the presidency in 1860. He just couldn't get past this burning desire to become a, a president. Uh, a, a U.S. senator at the time, Benjamin Wade, said he's a good man, but his theology is unsound. He thinks there's a fourth man in the Trinity. Even later, after the war, when Salmon Chase was appointed Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, he still continued to run for president, twice, from the Chief Justice role. And this ambition, which was unfulfilled, remained unfulfilled, uh, really led him to be, as you dine from his picture, from his portrait, a very unhappy man. I guess especially in 1864, there was a very long string of presidents who only served one term. So it kind of seemed natural, perhaps, to Chase and others that Lincoln, too, would only serve one term, especially since in the run-up to the election, the war wasn't going so well, and it seemed like Lincoln was quite vulnerable. That's right. Uh, Chase began to scheme against uh, Lincoln. He had all these clerks working for the expanded Treasury Department, expanded because of the new tax system. Uh, he enlisted these clerks to campaign for him. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln began to warn her, uh, her husband that Chase was uh, conniving against him. Lincoln just sort of uh, brushed it off with his typical humility. He, he figured that Chase would eventually blow his own campaign up, and that's exactly what happened. Well, Chase, as you mentioned, was also considered the most consequential Treasury Secretary, and that had to do with the financing of the war. In your book, you quote a Southern general who said, we were physically strong, but financially weak. And the book does a masterful job of showing how the financing of the war was really instrumental for the Union victory and also was a big part of the defeat of the Confederacy. Can you describe what Chase did in terms of both having a legal tender and in terms of placing bonds that helped finance the war for the North? Well, legal tender was the easiest money to use. You just printed pieces of paper and there you, there you, you were. But they were the ones that could most destabilize investor confidence, as we know. So Chase was very careful to insist on a full quotient of tax revenue so that investors knew that the union government wasn't just paper, that the resources of the northern economy were behind it. And because of this inflation, although it was 80% in the north, now that's not so bad for wars. It was also 80% in World War I and World War II. 80% over the course of a number of years, not in a single year. Correct. 80% over the course of the entire war. It was a hardship. But, but it was a, a, a livable hardship. In the South, it was 9,000% over four 
of those four years, that was not livable. The South just would not accept the necessity for taxation. They didn't accept the role of the of their the new central government in Richmond uh, as having the ability, the right to tax them. After all, that was why they'd rebelled. They didn't believe in the central government. And so they tried to finance the war uh, almost exclusively in the printing press. Their other big problem was that their resources were all fixed, uh, slaves and land. They had no ready capital that they could tax or they could transfer. They couldn't get the cotton over to England because of the northern blockade. So uh, their assets were fixed. They couldn't convert them into a form where they could use them to, to, to buy ammunition and food and so on that they needed the war. And their economy really collapsed before their, before their war effort did. You point out in the book about the tax, the income tax in the North, the first income tax, and a pivot from tariffs to income taxes. And you also point out that it's actually a progressive tax in the North. That's right. Um, the impetus for the tax was certainly to raise money. It certainly wasn't uh, an equality measure first. But since they needed the money, some of the representatives and senators, particularly from the Middle West, from Lincoln's part of the country, uh, were very keen that the rich should pay their share. And they specified the debates, mortgage brokers, people with stock portfolios, and so on. They said, we can't go back to our uh, constituents and say, we're not going to tax uh, people with stock portfolios more. So in, in that sense, they sounded very much like uh, representatives today uh, discussing a tax system. And they did put through a, a system with progressively higher rates. And perhaps continuing with the mirror to today, in the South, the power was held by the Southern oligarchy, who would be the source of tax revenues, but they were very much against that. Yes, the, the, the South didn't have a, a middle class in the same sense that the North did. They never had a developed industry in the sense the North did. So they didn't have a population to tax. The, the plantation owners tried to convince these small white Southerners that slavery was a good thing. But the dirty little secret was that slavery wasn't only bad for the blacks. Obviously, it was a terrible crime against the blacks, but it was terrible for the mass of poor whites. 80% of the Southern whites didn't own slaves, and they were their economic condition was far inferior to the economic condition of the average commoner in the North. And that was a big reason why the South didn't have the economic means to fight the war. Linked to the issues of war financing and inflation is the creation of a national bank. A lot of our listeners might not realize that there was not a national money at the outset of the Civil War. For example, if you go to Sturbridge Village in Massachusetts, which is a recreation of a colonial era town, you'll see that there were lots of different monies and there's even a ledger that shows effectively the exchange rate amongst those monies. What was the importance of a national money, the greenback, both for economic and financial reasons, like you said, to help finance a war, but also for fostering a sense of national unity in the North? Well, when, as you said, there were exchange rates between monies from Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and Vermont and Ohio, everybody's money was worth a different price in a different state. There was no national cohesiveness. America couldn't finance international trade. Britain was a center of finance. We needed one universal currency. The Lincoln government created two. The first was legal tender, uh, these pieces of paper not backed by anything, but deemed to be money. And that was the first national money, and it gave people a sense that we were one country. 
we had one currency. It was accepted everywhere by merchants all over the North and by the South. It was very important, not only to the economy, but to people's sense of nationhood. And whose picture was on the legal tender? Well, uh, Salmon Chase, the Treasury Secretary, and who, about whose emotional fragility we've already spoken, put himself on the $1, knowing, of course, that there'd be more $1 circulating than uh, uh, $5 or $20 and so on. Even then, he had to be persuaded to uh, approve legal tender. Chase and Lincoln always conceived of legal tender as temporary, because sooner or later, they wanted to get back to a, a gold standard, which they did after the war. So there was a second national money created during the Civil War, and that were these series of nationally chartered banks that you alluded to, each of them private banks, but each of them issued the, issuing the same national money, uh, which became the money of the United States from 1863 on, and which lasted right up to the creation of the Federal Reserve. Which is the subject of your other book. Yes, but and this money really enabled America to go on, uh, uh, to become a, a nation of the first rank economically, to, to catch Britain in world trade and finance and, and overtake it uh, during World War I. We never could have done it if we'd still been on uh, each state with its own money. The creation of a national money and the increasingly large role of the federal government is also reflected in the fact that in the antebellum period, people would say the United States are, but subsequently they would say the United States is, demonstrating that the United States became a nation and not just a confederacy of separate states. Yes, the, um, uh, this is the old Hamilton-Jefferson debate about a central government or, or states' right. And uh, the U.S. had always gone the Jefferson direction, uh, really right up to Lincoln. The Republicans were different. Of course, this is their first government during the Lincoln time. They were proud of having a strong national government. Senator Sherman, later the architect of the Sherman Antitrust Act, said we want to make everything as national as far as possible so that we will love our country. That was the whole quote. And that's a very different idea than what the country had had and obviously than what the Confederacy had uh, during the Civil War. I'm glad you brought up the Hamilton versus Jefferson debates because when I read Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton, I was struck by how their debate between Hamilton and Jefferson on the role of the federal government versus the state governments was still going on after more than two centuries. And your book shows how the debates on the economic side of this topic during the time of Lincoln carries on today. Yes, I think you know we've seen that graphically in the continued debates over uh, healthcare. We still don't have a unified national uh, system of financing healthcare. We're alone among the developed nations uh, of the world. We don't have one set of securities laws, we have 50 the strong tendency among many Americans to resist uh, federal control, you know, which, which, which arose from 1776, uh, is still with us. And it's, it's still at the heart of many, many of the debates we have. Roger, when I read your book, I was really impressed by the depth of scholarship. And I know it took you many years to research the book and then to write the book. I'd like to ask you how your views of the appropriate role of the federal government today may have been shaped or altered by your research and writing of Ways and Means? Well, I think the Republicans did um, uh, enact a series of revolutionary bills, but they were very careful about how they went about it. They didn't move too far ahead of the 
of the electorate. Uh, it was said of Lincoln that he so gently guides the pu public, he seems to be following it. I think that was a very useful lesson in statescraft, uh, even perhaps for a progressive today, that you lead, but you lead gently, uh, almost, almost to be seeming to follow the public and, and not to get hung out by being too far ahead of the electorate. Well, that's, I think, a good lesson. And I got a sense of that as well when reading Ways and Means. I congratulate you on the publication of the book. It's a wonderful read, and I hope it achieves the bestseller status that it deserves, just as your prior books did as well. Michael, it's a real pleasure to talk with you. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.